Genesis. Do reload your cups if you'd like some or Right. Uh, again, biting off more than we can chew in a 20-minute talk. Um, but here we go. Uh, rather than give you my particular view, which may come out more in the questions, I'm really going to give you a series of questions to work through in terms of pinpointing what are the key issues to work through in this area to come to one's own uh, uh, informed opinion of it. As Philip E. Johnson says, the best way to approach a problem of any kind is usually not to talk or even think very much about the ultimate answer until I've made sure I'm asking the right questions in the right order. Um, so this talk is an attempt to uh, point out the right questions in the right order. Uh, the first uh, hint I would give would be to start at the very beginning. Um, so Genesis 1 verse 1, or beginning of John's Gospel, uh, if you like, as well. Uh, in the beginning... God created. That's quite enough to get your mind around to begin with. Um, as Plato uh, put it in uh, the Laws Book 10, uh, all things do become, uh, have become and will become. This is how stuff becomes, always will be, always has been. Some by nature, some by art, or design, and some by chance. And these are the sort of explanatory uh, categories that we have to work with, which really boils down, in the end, to saying either mind comes before matter, or matter comes before mind. Uh, the belief that, that logos, that mind, that reason, um, is the ultimate reality, that mind created matter, and not vice versa, is the fundamental theistic claim about the nature of reality. Uh, that is the core, if you like, of the doctrine of creation. As Johnson again puts it, the essential point of creation has nothing to do with the timing or the mechanism the creator chose to employ, what we might call our model of creation, but with the element of design or purpose, the, the doctrine of creation. In the broadest sense, a creationist is simply a person who believes that the world was designed and exists for a purpose, um, because it was made by God for a purpose. So the doctrine of creation says that however he did it, God created for a purpose, and particularly God created us for a purpose. Um, Life does have an objective, God-given meaning and purpose to it. And when you look at the, uh, the first couple of chapters of Genesis, um, I could nick that phrase about perspicuity uh, from Keith's talk and say there are certain things that are perspicuitous in that text, in as much as all Christians who read that text agree that it says certain things, that it's making certain claims. Christians disagree with each other about a lot of the things that the text may or may not be saying, but we all agree about certain things that it is saying. It is saying, for example, that God created for a purpose. It is saying, clearly, that the sun and the moon are not deities, but created realities. 
It is saying that all humans, and not just royal humans, carry the divine image. The text is saying that male and female are complementary in uh, presenting an image of God. It is saying that humans have free will and moral responsibility. There's a lot of things that Christians of whatever persuasion and tradition agree that the Genesis text is saying. Of course, there are disagreements beyond that. But this doctrine of creation, if you like, there is a lot of core agreement upon. So our first question in approaching this issue, I think, should be, is the doctrine of creation true? Because if you don't think that the doctrine of creation is true, well, of course, you're not going to think that any of the models of creation, any of the interpretations of Genesis are true. It's not even worth really going there if you haven't sort of settled this issue up front. This is a crucial question, in other words, Uh, You can't be a Christian if you answer in the negative. If you say, no, the doctrine of creation is not true, then obviously you're not a Christian. Uh, That amounts to saying that God doesn't exist. But also, just point out briefly, that discovering a physical process that produces a given result, whatever that result might be, say uh, a cup of tea, or um, an anteater, or whatever, um, discovering such a process wouldn't show either that the result or the process weren't intended by an agent. Here's a physical process that leads to hot water. If I had a little robot arm that then picked up the kettle and poured it into the teapot and added it in there, there would be a physical process that we could discover that would lead to the creation of a nice cup of tea. Does that mean that nobody intended for there to be a cup of tea? Probably not. (laughs) Um, Those are compatible kinds of explanations. That is, minds can create directly or indirectly. uh, Discovering a material process or blind watchmaker, if one did discover such a thing, doesn't contradict belief in a blind watchmaker maker, as it were. Supposing this uh, mind programmed this robot factory controlling computer to use evolutionary algorithms to design cars that were then built by robots. Would you say, oh, I've discovered this computer and this robotic factory, therefore I don't need to appeal to minds in order to explain the existence of cars? That would be talking at cross-purposes, wouldn't it? As Richard Swinburne, an Oxford philosopher, puts it, men make not only machines, but machine-making machines. They may therefore naturally infer from nature, which produces animals and plants, to a creator of nature similar to men who make machine-making machines. Um, I think there is no uh, contradiction there uh, between those concepts. In other words, science doesn't reveal a world without design, as Richard Dawkins claims. Rather, Naturalistic atheism demands a world without design. As Alvin Plantinga puts in his recent book, uh, Where the Conflict Really Lies, Science, Religion and Naturalism, he says, the claim that evolution demonstrates that human beings and other living creatures have not, contrary to appearances, been designed, is not part of or a consequence of the scientific theory of evolution as such but a metaphysical or theological add-on. Naturalism 
and evolutionary theory together imply the denial of divine design. But evolutionary theory by itself doesn't have that implication. So my second question would be this. If we don't assume that the doctrine of creation is false, or indeed true, does the evidence suggest that evolution is an adequate explanation of biological diversity or not? Now, this is an interesting, you might say important question, but it's not a crucial question. You can be a Christian without having an answer to that question. How God created is secondary to the fact that God created. And indeed, you might think that evolution might be a wholly adequate theory. Or you might think that it's a more or less partially adequate theory. But the right way to find out is to let the evidence speak for itself without making your mind up a priori beforehand whether that's a priori from a naturalistic position, or indeed, I would say, a priori from a particular interpretation of Genesis. And, of course, evolution is a very slippery term. It actually means a whole bunch of different things. Um, Here's a number of different things that people use evolution to mean, and it's really the conjunction of all of these claims that is uh, what's sometimes called the grand evolutionary story, Um, the, pro- the ancient earth hypothesis, the progress hypothesis, the common ancestry hypothesis, the universal common ancestry hypothesis, the Darwinian hypothesis, the naturalistic origins hypothesis. Some of these, if you believe, entail believing others. Uh, for example, if you believe the universal common ancestry hypothesis, if you believe that life originated at one place and all subsequent forms of life are related by common ancestry... Well, then, of course, you have to believe in common ancestry. But it would be logically possible to believe in common ancestry without believing in universal common ancestry. So the question, do you believe in evolution, is just too blunt of a question. I want to say, well, which, what meaning, which bit are you talking about here? Um, and go into more detail on it. Uh, it's a very detailed question. Um, you may have noticed this arrow over here. I've arranged these in at least what I consider to be most probable to least probable amongst these claims. Back to Professor Alvin Plantinga, who says, a Christian, of course, naturally believes that God has created and sustains the world. Starting from this position, the doctrine of creation, we recognize that there are many ways in which God could have created the things he has in fact created. How, in fact, did he do it? Did it all happen just by way of the workings of the laws of physics, by nature and chance, as Plato would put it? Or was there further divine activity? That's the question. Starting from the belief in God, we must look at the evidence and consider the probabilities as best we can. And different people will no doubt come up with different estimates of where that evidence points. If you had answers to both of those two questions then you'd be in a pretty good position to ask a third question. Question three, which model of creation is the most plausible? Now, again, that's an interesting and perhaps important question, but it's not a crucial question. You could be a Christian without having an answer to this question. A model of creation is an attempt to coherently integrate 
the Christian doctrine of creation with a particular scientific interpretation of the book of nature and a particular theological interpretation of the book of God. It's an attempt to try and put everything we think we know from everywhere we think we, we know stuff from into one coherent understanding of the reality that's out there. There are, in other words, one core doctrine, but lots of overlapping. They're not all going to overlap in this neat way, but you get the general idea. Uh, models of creation. So there'll be differences between the models and overlaps between some models, but not other models. But they all have the core doctrine of creation um, in common with one another. Clearly, answering that third question would be a very complex business. Uh, to be really confident of your answer, you'd basically have to be at least, oh, I don't know, PhD level in the following subjects. Uh, the philosophy of knowledge, the philosophy of science, the philosophy of revelation, natural theology, systematic theology, ancient languages, translation, ancient Near East cultures, hermeneutics, cosmology, physics, chemistry, biochemistry, biology, and information theory. Just for starters. <laughs> it's a complex issue. Um, Answering this question is probably not going to be perspicuitous for most people. Okay? <laughs> and there are a wide range of views held by equally sincere uh, Bible-believing Christians, of course, all the way from so-called young earth views to um, intelligent design theory, which is actually compatible with a sort of broad tent theory, compatible with a, a range of different views, various types of old earth creationism, um, including various different forms of theistic evolution. There's at least two different forms of theistic evolution, possibly more. As Alvin Plantinga says again, and I'm, I'm pretty much with him on this, and uh, he says the proper understanding of the early chapters of Genesis is a difficult area, an area where I'm not sure where the truth lies. Um, people are still coming up with interesting th theses about the meaning and interpretation of that text after several thousand years of people trying to interpret it, um, which pretty much convinces me that no one has really got the correct interpretation yet. Of course, we can agree on the perspicuitous core doctrinal issues that Christians would say in common with one another that the text is saying, rather than these broader issues of the model that we get out of it um, in trying to wrestle with that text and everything else that we know from everywhere else we know it from as well, I just think it's a very complicated issue and a perfectly decent Christian position to have on this is I am agnostic about what these, the answers to these further questions are. I'm glad to see that Keith had a quote from St. Augustine as well. So here's my Augustine quote and interestingly this is from his book on the literal meaning of Genesis. And the literal meaning of a text, in terms of Augustine's literary culture, of course, was the meaning of the text according to the type of literature that it is. So um, when we had, you know, my love is like a red, red rose, Augustine would say, well, the literal meaning of that is not my love has a stem and thorns and petals, because that's not interpreting that text according to the correct kind of literature that it is. The literal meaning of that text, my love is like a red, red rose, is that it's an analogy, <laughs> that it's a metaphor, that it is poetic speech, and 
to understand it as such is to take the literal meaning of the text. So our, our understanding of what literal means has changed over time. Um, it's one of those difficult hermeneutical issues we face in reading old texts. Anyway, here's what Augustine says in the literal meaning of Genesis. He says, In matters that are obscure and far beyond our vision, even in such as we may find treated in Holy Scripture, different interpretations are sometimes possible without prejudice to the faith we have received, without contradicting any of the doctrines. In such a case, we should not rush headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side that if further progress in the search of truth justly undermines our position, we too fall with it. And I think that ties in very nicely with some of the things that Keith was saying. So there you go. Thank you very much, Okay, well, who would like to ask specifically? I just want to fill in a small gap mm. um, as I perceive it. Um, you say that if the universe wasn't created, then there can't be a God. That is because God is by definition the creator of the universe. Uh, yes, uh, there can't be the, the, the God that Christians believe in. Christianity would be, would be false. I said you can't be a Christian and believe in it. Of course, you could, you could believe that there is a God and that there isn't a, a creation. But of course, that would entail you having to think that you were God. Um, but, you know, because uh, clearly you're, you're there thinking these things and there's no creation. Um, you'd have to be the uncreated. God is uncreated. Everything else depends on him. Um, yeah, so, yeah, you're quite right. There's, there's a logically possible view there, but it, it wouldn't be a Christian really view. Yeah, yeah. The point that it's God, by, God is by definition the creator of the Right, yeah, okay, the, the who created God question. This is, uh, the question assumes that uh, everything is created. And sometimes um, atheists, particularly new atheists, will criticise, say, the, 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 the cosmological, the causal argument for God and say, well, the argument is basically claiming um, everything has a cause, here's the universe, so it must have a cause, and that's God. Which, of course, raises the question, well, if everything must have a cause... God's something, then he must have a cause. Now, of course, no actual proponent of the cosmological argument would put it that way for precisely that reason. Um, God, again, by concept, is an uncreated being. If there is a God, he is not created by anything. As soon as something is created, well, it doesn't qualify as being God anymore, by by, by definition. Um, you can't, uh, the, the, the question kind of assumes that it is true to say that everything must have a cause. And I think that's, that's false. Uh, and it must be false, because if everything must have a cause, then there must be an actually infinite regress of causes. Everything, this is caused by this, which is called the natural cause, and so on and so on and so on and so on and so on, you know, without end. And one can argue that that's not possible. There must actually be something that is uncaused. And the, the real question is, well, what's the best candidate for the uncaused thing that must exist? Is it this world, or is it something outside of, transcendent of this world? Um, well, it seems to me physical things are crummy candidates for uncaused realities, whereas an immaterial mind before matter is a much better answer to why there is anything at all, rather than matter 
existing and then causing mind later. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, more of an observation, really, but I mean, you quite often hear people say that science and the idea of evolution and Big Bang takes away from God's creation. But the way I look at mm. it is, is to create this one tiny event, maybe the Big Bang, maybe something before then, mm. that could cascade by all these random events, defy entropy, to create the complexity and the beauty of the world we see around us. Yeah. To me, that's, that's a great creation. That one small event mm. is far better than... Yeah. The idea of creating every little detail to around yeah. us. That's right. I, I, and part of your answer is going to depend on what, what you make of, of the evidence of what is physically kind of doable in, in a sense. But I agree with you. If, if you were to analogize creation to a game of snooker or something, and you see someone start off at the game of snooker and they make one, one move with the pool cue and the ball goes and, the, and all the balls go in all the pockets... You think, well, they're really good at playing. No, they're much better than the person who has to take a lot of different shots to get it all done, in that sense. So if it's possible um, to do it all in one, as it were, and you find that that's, that's how someone's done it, then surely that increases how impressed you are with them. Um, it will hinge partly on that question, well, is it possible to do it all in one? But if it is, then the person who does it all in one seems more impressive. Yeah. Can I pick up on that? Because I think it was shortly after Darwin's Origin of Species that Charles Kingsley mm. uh, said that what a remarkable thing it was that God didn't make them, he made them make themselves, which I think picks up, uh, picks up a little point. Um, and from a personal perspective, I, I think it says something remarkable that it took 4.5 billion years of this earth to get to something as special as you and me, that God was prepared to wait that long. Um, maybe that's a, 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 if you like, a more personal, reflecting uh, sort of a, a way of looking at things. 13.7 billion years of the universe to get to you and me, and God was, all of that time, coming down to where you and I, and that's just my way. Thank you. Maybe I can look this up before I, before I came. But am I right in saying there's two creator accounts of the Genesis, and they differ slightly? Yes. So how do what we would term uh, traditional creationists, as in the sort of stereotypical young earth, not going to have anything other than what's mm. printed mm. in the book of the Bible, how do they justify that? Um, well, I'll call on anyone to correct, correct me if I'm not correct here, but I, I, I think there's a general recognition that there are two different creation accounts, and I, I think the general view of them is that um, one takes a sort of broader sweep of the creation, and the second one is more sort of human-focused, um, as it were. So they're, they're taking different um, viewpoints on the creation story. Uh, they've got different foci, uh, as it were. Um, I guess the, the extent to which you're going to want them to be um, harmonisable and worry about whether or not they are, and I'm not prejudging that, will, again, depend on, the, on, on issues to do with how much do you think it's making certain literal claims that, you know, you can go through the sort of one story and make a list of, well, here are the 25 different truth claims that it's making that, I, that are... You know the sort of truth claims that can be verified or falsified. Here's the thirty from the other story, and do they 
compare verses against views of those texts that take them as more poetic accounts or, or whatever, um, because, you know, my love is like a red, red rose, um, uh, and someone else uses some other analogy, and then you, if you were to come along and say, oh, well, hang on, you know, so, someone can't be um, like a, I don't know, these song of songs, <laughs> you know, someone can't be like a deer running through the forest, a deer is nothing like a rose, therefore these accounts contradict each other. Um, So the question of of what kind of literature um, is going to be key and and prior to getting on to questions of of harmonisation between accounts that you take as being the same kind of literature, making the same kind of truth claim. Yeah. You certainly wouldn't try and harmonise two poems. That's that's right, yeah. But you you would want, if they're both about the same thing, you'd want the key meaning to be compatible, at least. Um, but that's a different thing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, excuse me. I was just wondering why you think that the universe needs a creator as to, mm. rather than God needing a creator. I know you did sort of answer that question, but I'd slightly like go into that a little bit further. Look, yeah. Make sense um, this is basically a request for me to, to very briefly describe a version of the cosmological argument to, to justify... Yeah, 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 sure, okay. So let's, let's do it like this. Um, uh, the universe has a finite past. Big Bang cosmology, etc., etc., shows that there was a first physical event. Yeah. Okay. Uh, physical events, by nature, are contingent realities that depend upon something outside and independent of themselves. They all stand in some kind of broadly construed causal relation. Quantum mechanics is not a, uh, a rebuttal of that because the quantum events happen in the context of the quantum vacuum laws, etc. So physical events happen, uh, have a cause, but there was a first physical event. So the cause of the first physical event can't have been the prior physical event because there isn't one. Well, we wouldn't necessarily know that. Well, uh, now, now that would be to question the first premise. The first premise was that, that there's a, there was a first physical event. Right. Okay. okay. So, so given that there's a first physical event and that physical events stand in a causal relation, the first physical event can't stand in a causal relation to a prior physical event, by definition, so it must stand in relation to a prior non-physical something or other. Yeah. What would be a non-physical something or other capable of causing... Um, a mind? I don't necessarily agree that it's non-physical beginnings, though, before. I mean, there's no evidence to say that a god did it. And also, I mean, there's a chance, I don't, obviously don't know the answer to this, but there's a chance there were other universes and other sort of, uh, what they call it, multiverse situation. Right, okay, which is, I mean, which, yeah. We as much evidence for that at the moment as we have for God. And, you know, there's no reason to say that God's the answer to that and not okay. the There's no reason to, to yeah. choose one as the answer which is, again, a way of questioning premise, premise one, and, yeah. and we haven't got time to go into the, the backup yeah. uh, for that. Or, um, or completely avoiding um, questions about beginnings, that's one kind of cosmological of the domino toppling kind of argument. The other is, why do physical things exist here and now mm. uh, at all? Is, are, are there causal relationships? Are there causal relationships um, that mean things exist from moment to moment, and again, can they be uh, actually infinite in extent or not? And if not, um, then um, is a physical reality a, a good 
stopping point or our physical reality is by again by nature being contingent yeah. must be dependent upon something that must be yeah. non-contingent and non-physical you, you that's, that's, well because um, the argument doesn't get God out of the end what it gets out of the end if the argument works would be something like a, a non-physical um, uncaused reality that caused the existence or um, sustains in existence the existence of uh, physical realities um, and that is um, because uh, of it being non-physical and the only options there appearing to be for example a mind or an abstract object abstract objects being by definition causally unrelated to anything by a process of elimination some kind of a mind seems to be the best candidate for what a non-physical thing would be there so as an argument to the best exp- explanation, you're, yeah. you're getting to part of what you mean by the concept of God. Yeah. Uh, and certainly looking, it's looking more God-like than, than particle-like, well, if you know, like. There's, there's no reason to, to jump to God, and there's also no reason to jump to right. particle-like, but there's equal evidence to suggest either, really. Okay. <laughs> we're, 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 going to agree, we're going to agree to differ there, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'll bring a longer article on that another week. <laughs> uh, we're going to go to uh, the um, Stephen Hawking's birthday celebration for the series of lectures given in Cambridge, and a pivotal one that on the link of Does This Universe Have a Beginning? And the view that you put is generally accepted by cosmologists now that it does, whatever framework, whether it's a multiverse or whatever, all, all those other schemes only put back the beginning to a certain point, but that had to be the beginning of the universe. And that's something that scientists are really only now really facing, and it does raise massive questions, which were reflected in what Stephen Hawking said at the opening of the Paralympic Games. Because everyone now recognises on the basis of the science. Stephen Hawking did also say that that wasn't necessarily the beginning of the universe. I think you look at some of his more recent sayings. That was very recent. Yeah. I can't remember exactly within two years ago. But then what Hawking would question would be the the deduction from the premise that the, the, the physical past is finite but not the premise that the physical past is finite. He would question later on in, in the argument. Um, he, what, what he would basically end up questioning is, is the, the idea that um, you can't get something from nothing by a misdefinition of nothing, yeah, of basically. Um, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> anyway, that's um, well, it's a recurring issue. Yeah. There's lots of material on it. Yeah, plenty of previous yeah. talks on that kind of, yeah. yeah. Good. Thank you, Peter, very Good. much. Thank you.